want you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Can we do that? Praise God. Now, we know we've got some good folks missing, so all that means is that you're going to have to be louder. Right? You've got to make up for what is lacking. We know there's nothing lacking when Jesus is here. He said, we're two or three are gathered. I'm there. Amen. Took only 120 people to begin the great revival in Jerusalem. 120 people in a, in a city of thousands got together and prayed in an upper room. And God shook that city. He shook the world. What happened there? First Thessalonians 5. We're going to start in verse 14. In fact, we're just going to read verse 14 and, and jump off from there. But in verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. <laughs> Let's skip that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Those are big thoughts right there. And he's only getting started. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterance, but examine everything carefully and hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. We want to go back to that verse 14 where it says, We urge you, brethren, we urge you to admonish the unruly, we all know what that means. The Bible, if you look this up in the original language, it says the, those that are out of order. And to admonish the unruly means to, to set them back straight again, that you don't just stand around and say, well, they're going off the deep end, but not my business. Uh, when we're part of a body, it is our business. It may not be your business, but it is our business. <laughs> maybe, you've, maybe you proclaimed yourself the inquisitor of the church. You are going to uh, get rid of heresy wherever it might be or, or any, any correction that needs to be done, you think it's your job. It might not be your job, uh, but we can, we can uh, encourage one another and, and there is authority in the church where uh, you, know, you have people in your life that can come along and I hope you've opened the door to people in your life that can come along and say, you're, you're going off the deep end here. You need some help. Admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Now, that's a big thought, to encourage the faint-hearted. And we're going to spend most of our time on that thought today. Because what does faint-hearted mean? King James says (laughs) feeble-minded. Nobody likes to be called (laughs) (laughs) feeble-minded. Faint-hearted. I'll take faint-hearted. That's okay. That sounded bad when you first said it. But when compared to feeble-minded, I will take (laughs) faint-hearted. What it means is, Somebody who's faint-hearted might be somebody that started out strong. It might be somebody that believed the Lord. It might be somebody that knows the Word. But faint-hearted means they're about to give up. Real close to giving up. That comes up through several scriptures. Scripture says in another place, it says you will reap a harvest in due season if you don't faint. If you don't faint. Another translation says, if you don't lose heart. 
There are so many people that are so close to what God has for them. They're this close to the finish line. They're inches away from what God has for them because you know the hardest part of a race is right near the end. If you've watched any Olympics, you know that, that those last few uh, feet, the last few minutes in a soccer game, the last few seconds, all of these things, they're, they're the hardest part. You're having to push through some things. You've, your energy's run out. You, you had all that optimism at the beginning of the race. You had all that optimism at the beginning of the game. And, and now, by the end, there's this temptation to give up. But you know, a farmer doesn't see the harvest the minute he plants a seed. He's got he's to water it. He's got to cultivate it. And then, at some point, he's got to leave it to God. And then he's got to show up to harvest the thing. And the Bible says, we will reap a harvest. We will. It says, don't grow weary in well-doing, for we in due season will reap a harvest if we don't give up. I, there is an if there. But I know we tell you, you know what? You will, I mean, you sow, you reap. That's a spiritual law. You plant, you harvest. That's a spiritual law. But here, look at this. There is an if attached to that verse. You will reap a harvest. And it doesn't say if you're a good kid. It doesn't say you will reap a harvest if you say all the right things. It says you will reap a harvest if you don't faint, if you don't give up, if you don't give up heart. And I know that we, we here always are trying to encourage you that, you know, no one's responsible for your spiritual welfare more than yourself. You've you got to stand up and say, I'm taking responsibility for this. I know the word. I'm going to stand in faith. But we also know God put us in a body, and we have to have people around us, and you have to have people around you that are stronger than you, and I know that, that it's popular in certain circles, and especially if you read a good leadership book, to surround yourself with people that are, that are stronger than you all the time. But the problem with that is, if everybody obeyed that, nobody would hang out with anybody. <laughs> right? Because the minute you found people stronger than you, they'd go, wait a second, you're, whoa, get away from me, quarantine. Get away from me, you wimp. I'm going to find somebody stronger. I got I to get out of the way, mister. I got to go to the big leagues. Maybe there's somebody in the buckle of the Bible belt that's stronger, you know? That doesn't work. You got to surround yourself with people stronger and weaker. You need people in your life that can speak into your life. You need people in your life that you're going to help and, and encourage and speak into. And you need people that are pretty much equal. They're at the same part as you that you can just encourage one another. You need all those relationships in your life. Because if you don't have those relationships, if you don't have that person to encourage you, you will at some point feel like giving up and you need somebody to push you along. If you don't have somebody that you can encourage, you're not going to grow. Because God didn't create us just for input but for output. And so if you're not encouraging somebody else, you're going to get discouraged yourself. That's kind of the way it works. You know, there's some certain scriptures that I don't fully get, but I believe. Like the scripture that says, pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, I know that means you as a group. If you pray for one another, you'll all be healed. I agree with that, but I think there's also another truth in there that when you pray for other people, God does things in you. That when you, when you bless other people, God takes care of you. That, that, that when you take care of others, He takes care of your family. I believe that. You need people in your life that are, that are weaker. We go, do I have to? Because we all, you know, there are, um, there are terminally, sometimes they seem like terminally weak people. They're just chronically weak. 
you know, that are just always weak. And you know what? You just, the Bible says, tolerate those that are weak in the faith. Tolerate means you don't just get fed up with them, but you help them. And you know what? Maybe that person's going to take a little bit longer than the last person you helped, but you need to do it. It's what Jesus did for you. That's what God is doing in you. Be patient. Be patient, be patient, and say about them what God says about them. Even if you don't see it, even if they phone you every day and whine to you all day long, you stop saying they're just a whiny, you know, frowny britches. You have to begin to say, and you say, I would never say that. But you have to begin to say what God says about them instead of what you see. If you were sick, if you were sick and you were coughing, you'd know those are symptoms, right? But you also know what the Word of God says, and the Word of God and your symptoms might not match up. So just because you're coughing and you're sneezing and you're doing all those things, you don't go around the house going, I'm sick, I'm sick, I'm so very sick. That's true. That may be a fact, but you know that the truth is that by His stripes you were healed, so that's, that's what you start talking about. Well, sometimes you have to treat people the exact same way. All the symptoms seem to be that they're a mess. But you know what? You've got to begin to talk about them like God talks about them. They are more than a conqueror. You don't, you don't have to lie. You don't have to say, there's no problem in that person's life. Just like if I broke my arm, I wouldn't say, somebody said, did you break your arm? No, I didn't break my arm. That's not faith. That's denial. We've talked about this before, but when the Israelites spied out the promised land, you know, 10 gave a bad report. Two gave a good report. And you know the two that gave a good report still said they're giants? They didn't say, there's no giants. There's no such thing as giants. There's no such thing as fortresses in Jesus' name. Well, they didn't know Jesus. But in the name of Jehovah, there are no fortresses. There are no giants. They're not living in denial. They said, there's, oh, sure, there's giants. But they said, if God is with us, then they're going to be our prey. They'll be our food. What are we afraid of? If God's with us, who cares if there's giants? If God is with us, we can and will take the land. Amen. So faith is not denial. It's not denying that, there's, that, you had, that you are having to fight something. It's not denial that you broke your arm. It's not denial that this person is, is really on a bad, in a bad place. You don't have to deny that, but you have to begin to speak of what God is saying. So... You speak not the things that are, but as the Bible says, things that are not as though they were. So you say, what do I know to be true about this person? I don't have to lie, but I can say, Christ in them is their hope of glory. They're more than a conqueror through him that loved them. Greater is he that's in them than he that's in the world. They have a measure of faith, and that measure of faith is going to rise up in Jesus' name. I believe that they are going to overcome whatever they're facing because Jesus stands beside them, strengthens them, and rescues them from the mountain of the lion. If you can't think of anything nice to say, just quote Scripture. That's just a simple way to keep your mouth clean. Just, just say, all right, I can't think of anything nice to say about this person. I'm just going to say what the Bible says. I can't go wrong there. Don't quote Goliath. Maybe not even Paul. <laughs> you see, because Paul at one point, and you know, I'm not going to say it, it's Paul by the, by the Holy Spirit, writes a letter to a pastor in, in a tough city. You know what he said to him? Can I read it to you? This is just, uh, I wasn't going to read this, but I think it would just be more fun if we read it this way because it will give you hope. 
that, that you know what? You're not in the worst place. Your friends aren't the worst people. Maybe you thought, I never thought that. <laughs> Apostle Paul said in uh, Titus chapter 1, he says, one of themselves, one of their own people, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, what is Paul supposed to say here? That's not true, Titus. They've been lied about. They're good people. The Lord loves them. Now he says, this testimony is true. <laughs> That's what you got to work with, Titus. See you later. Have fun. All right. It's been good. Write me in a year. I want testimonies. He said, this testimony is true. Now notice he didn't say it about his church. He didn't say your church is full of these people. He just said, that's the city you're in. You are in a city full of, uh, you're of liars, lazy beasts, evil glut, or evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Imagine they, uh, can you imagine, I mean, this is a letter written to their pastor. Can you imagine at some point they're like, pastor, did you get a letter from Paul? Yeah, I, I did. <laughs> can, we, can we hear it? Some of it. Just read it out loud. Nah. Just, 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 just let, well, let me read it. I want to read it. I want to read it to everybody. Uh, you're not going to like it. Oh, that's okay. I like everything Paul writes. He's such a good preacher. When he comes to our church, I feel like he's speaking just to me. Well, he is speaking just to you. <laughs> so he goes ahead and says they're, they're liars all the time. They're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely. <laughs> severely. So that they may be sound in the faith. Amen. Not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. And uh, he goes on. But uh, <laughs> what I like about this is he gives the solution, not just the problem. Right. He says, here's the solution. Reprove them soundly. And here's the end result. He doesn't say you're going to reprove them soundly, but they're always going to be losers. He says, here's the end result. They will be sound in the faith. Yes, right. Now, do you think someone who's sound in the faith is anything like those people he just described? They're opposites. Someone who's sound in the faith stands out in a wicked, perverse city. They're obviously different. In a place of great darkness, they're light. So, some, so faith is not denying this stuff. And you're going to have people, you're, you're not going to have to deny that there's issues, but you don't go around talking about them all the time. You've got to begin to say, here's what God says about them. And I, everything I see looks to be the contrary. Everything I see in them seems to be totally opposite, but I'm going to tell you, I know what God says about them, and I believe that above everything else. And I'm going to when I talk to them, I'm gonna, not going to talk to them every conversation like they're a loser that needs to get hit over the head. Sometimes I'm going to talk to them. In fact, all the time, I'm going to talk to them and say, here's what you need to hear from God. And sometimes it comes across as stern, and sometimes you've got to be gentle with some people. But I believe that there's nobody beyond the grace of God. There's nobody beyond Amen. the strength of God. And you say, well, they're born again. They should know better. Yes, they should. That's why God puts you in their life. And I'm going to tell you something. That's probably why God put them in your life. You're going to grow. You're going to become more like Jesus. Sometimes God puts you in pe people in your life that just grind the wrong way. 
and he's going to do it to make you more like him. That doesn't mean he made them like they are. That's their decision. But he's going to use you to help them, and it's going to make both of you better. So encourage the faint-hearted. But I want to talk to you this morning, not just about encouraging the faint-hearted, but being encouraged if you are faint-hearted. You know, I, I painted a pretty unrosy picture of faint-hearted people, but do you know what? Faint-hearted people aren't, aren't always these, uh, you know, just compulsive whiners. These aren't always people that are just continually in a bad mood. Sometimes somebody who's faint-hearted are your strongest people in the church, but they've just been fighting for a long time. They've been fighting and they've had many battles go on at once. Some of them they've won and some of them they felt like they lost. The worst thing that could happen is for that person to give up. It's for that person to not hear what the Word of God and stop. And giving up doesn't just mean you quit and you stop going to church and you, and you go and just stay home. I've, I've met people that have given up that still put on the, all the signs of still being in the game. They still show up. They still lift their hands. They still volunteer because they know they're supposed to. Yes. But there's not that spark anymore. They've stopped believing like they used to believe. And you've got to guard yourself against that kind of unbelief. It creeps up on you slowly. And it is not a, it's not an unbelief that's based on what you know through the Word of God because the Word of God is going to bring faith into your life. The Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Faith will rise when you're in the Word. Faith will rise when you're hearing the Word. But this, this kind of faint-heartedness does not come. It, it may come because you're not in the Word, but it also comes because things have happened and experiences have become more real to you than the Word of God itself. What you've experienced has, has shaped your beliefs. There are whole denominations, guys, that were built. I can name denomination after denomination that started off with revival, started off with the power of God, started off with the fire of God. But then slowly the doctrine that was based on the Word of God began to be doctrine that was based on what happened to Grandma Millie or what happened to Brother So-and-So. And they began to shape their doctrine based on what happened and what didn't happen. So somebody that used to come up and believe that God could heal them, well, this, it didn't work for this person. This person seemed to be a perfect Christian. What hope is there for me? You don't know everything that happened with that person. You're not God. You don't know the whole situation. There are people that, that I have no idea why they died. But that doesn't change the word of God. Doesn't change it at all. There is, I mean, because my experiences are from a very limited perspective. I can only see what I can see, and I'm standing here on the earth. I'm not up where God is now. Sometimes, if thankfully, if you'll if you'll submit to Him and and really believe what He says, He'll show you what He sees. But I don't have the perspective that He has. And so, if I were to tell you from my experience what the truth is. That would be flawed. Just like somebody, you know, a thousand years ago trying to explain space to you. Trying to explain, you know, we, we just got these pictures of Mars. We've been getting pictures from Mars for years. But now we even get better pictures. We put a new rover down. That's pretty cool. But can you imagine if you asked somebody about Mars a thousand years ago, what they might have said? About the moon, what they might have said? You've heard the theories. Well, we know it's not made of cheese. We know there aren't moon people. But you know, people didn't know that back then. 
They might have had their suspicions. They might have, but if you based everything on just what you saw, it would be incomplete because you can't see everything. You don't know what's going on. People thought that diseases were caused. I mean, they were, I mean, there were viruses going around. There was plagues going around. And they were convinced that, that, you know, somebody did something superstitiously bad. Somebody, you know, walked under a ladder. Some, somebody, you know, somebody's a witch, you know. They, they thought that uh, somebody must have done something really weird because we're all getting sick. Not knowing that this was a real bacterial issue. This is a microbiological issue. This was something that could be fixed if you stopped drinking that water. You see, our perspective is not complete. No matter how far we get along in science, no matter how far, we don't see everything like God sees it. So you're going to have to believe that the Word of God is always true. Now, I believe that with all my heart. And if I... Guys, I'm one of those people that if I started to believe that the Word of God wasn't always true, I wouldn't even show up today. There's just no point. Either this is true, either God is true, or He's not. Either Jesus is Jesus, or He's not. I, I don't need a social club on Sunday morning. I, I'm happy at home. I don't need that. I could have slept in. But I know that there is a living God. I've seen His work. I've seen blind people see. I've seen lame people walk. I've seen just total degenerate sinners become born again and that's the greatest miracle of them all. I've seen those people who were dead inside become alive. There's nothing bigger than that. You can't convince me that God isn't real because I don't believe in a God from 2,000 years ago. I believe a God right now. You need to be reminded of these things. And just because you don't have the answer for every situation, you've got to believe that this is always true. I don't know all the facts about what happened to that sister or that brother or that guy. I, all I know is that the word hasn't changed. That Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he said, lay hands on the sick and they will recover, that's still just as true. If he said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, then I believe that's true. If he says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That's true. That's not a lie. So if, if I see something that seems to contradict that, I have to say what the prophet said, let God be true and every man be a liar. Your eyes can lie to you, but God's word never will. Thank God. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage them. I want you to read something in the book of Exodus going to go to chapter 2. We'll start there and then we'll move on. There are a lot of things we think we believe. We're convinced we believe them, but you know, you'll find out whether you really believe them when it's when it, the rubber hits the road and it's time to believe it and you've got no other choice but to believe or disbelieve. You'll know then, do I really believe what I say I believe? In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of the bondage. Do you hear that? They sighed. That's not just a, that's not a sigh of relief. This is somebody giving out under the pressure. This is a people that used to be proud, now beaten down. You ever met somebody like this? 
Somebody used to hold their head up, and just stuff happened. They got beaten down, their head, they started to hunch, their head went down. That spark that was in them was gone. You've seen this happen? I've seen it happen several times. It happened to a whole nation. They sighed. They sighed. They, they sagged under the pressure. And it says, because of the bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help, because of their bondage, rose up to God. That's huge. That's, that's so big that God hears. The Lord hears, and He's never far. And their cry for help rose to God. And He wasn't hard-hearted. He wasn't cold to them. He heard and had compassion on them. It says, and God, so God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thank God He remembers His covenant. Amen? Do you remember your covenant with God? Because there's the question. When you, when you call out for help, when you cry out to Him, God will remember His covenant with you. And He remembered His covenant. doesn't mean He's like, oh yeah, those guys. No, it means he, it, it was relevant. He brought it to the forefront. This was, he was going to act on this covenant. Not just that he's reminded like he totally forgot about the Israelites. Oh yeah, they were in Egypt. I left them on autopilot. I, I, le- I probably left them in the oven too long. That's, no, he just, when they cried out, God didn't just say, oh, this is a sad group of people. You've got to realize, God is not just acting because you're so pathetic. I looked at the floor when I said that. I didn't look at anybody in the eye. Sometimes you wonder why I do this when I preach. Because I don't want you to think, me? I'm pathetic. Uh, somebody encouraged the faint-hearted. <laughs> but when you call out to God, he's not just saying, well, man, you were just so sad this time, I have to move. It's embarrassing. I'm going to have to do this just so you shut up. No. He recalls his covenant. He's not acting out of pity. He's acting out of covenant. That's what God acts on. Now, he does have compassion. He is a God of mercy. I do believe that. And so he has mercy on people he doesn't have a covenant with, right? He has compassion on people he doesn't even have a covenant with. But that's not you. And when you call out to God, it's not a competition to see how sad you can be. Or how, 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 how wretched you could appear to God so that He'll move on your behalf. You don't have to make God feel sorry for you. You know that you've got a covenant with Him. And when you call out to Him, that's what He's acting on. I have a covenant with these people. The blood of Jesus covers them. He moves on it. He says He heard their groaning. God remembered His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God saw the sons of Israel. And God took notice of them. You know, when God takes notice, He does something about it. Well, if you know your Bible, you know in the next chapter, God appears to Moses right away. He hears the cry and He moves on. We're going to skip to chapter 6. We're going to skip all that stuff that God said to Moses. Because I trust you can go back and read that and you know what He said. But in chapter 6, who here has a New American Standard Bible? What does it say on the chapter heading there? 
You like that? God promises action. I like that. I, I, I want to put that on top of every chapter. God promises action. Chapter 6 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he will let them go. And under compulsion he will drive them out of this land. God spoke further to Moses and said to, them, said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, or Yahweh, is what it really says. This is not the word Adonai. This is the word Yahweh. This is the word for God. The word that Jews today won't even write out because it's so holy. By their name, by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So God made himself known in a new way. And it says, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. So they're not going to lose on this one. Say, therefore, to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord. And before everything else, I am the Lord. Before everything else, let me introduce myself. I am Yahweh. That fights for you. That created you. That calls you his firstborn. I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. This is awesome. Now, you'd think they'd be partying right now, right? This is what they cried out for. God, help us. And he comes and goes, I'm God, and I'm going to help you. What better news could you have than that? Question asked, question answered, right? This is simple. He says, and I'll do it with my outstretched arm, and I'll do it with my righteous judgments. And he says this. I will bring you. I'm not just going to bring you out. He says, then I will take you for my people. I will take, wow, that's cool. I will take you for my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. Now, how many times in different ways has he made the same promise to them? Let's count the promises he made. He says, I have remembered my covenant. Okay, I'm the Lord. I will bring you out. So that's one. I will deliver you, that's two. I will redeem you, that's three. I will take you, that's four. I will be, five. You shall know, six. So six right here, you shall know that I'm Lord your God who brought you out from the burden. So I'm counting six right here. Then he says, I will bring you to the land, that's seven, which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you, that's eight, for a possession. I am the Lord. So he's made eight times he said something to them. That's talking about them coming out. And thank God, not just coming out of bondage, but coming into a land. You see, because that's what God will always do. He doesn't just call you out of darkness. He calls you into light. Just doesn't call you out of addiction. He calls you into, into a plan and a destiny. Thank God. That's God's promise for you. Whatever he brings you out of, he's not just bringing you out. He's bringing you into something. Thank God he's got a destiny for you. He's not just going to say you're no longer a dirty, rotten sinner. He now says you're righteous. He now says you're called. He now says you're anointed to do what I've called you to do. 
He calls you out to call you in. And he called them out of Egypt. And he said, I will bring you into your own land. And I will give it to you a possession, for a possession. For I am the Lord. Party time, right? This is the answer. But look at this. In verse 9. So Moses spoke thus to the sons of Israel. In other words, he said exactly what God told him to say. But they did not listen to Moses on account of their despondency and cruel bondage. The word despondency in the Hebrew, it's actually two words. Well, it comes from two words, which means a shortness of spirit. You say, what, what does shortness of spirit mean? What, what does shortness of breath mean to you? When you run out of a short, when you're short of breath, can you run anymore? You're, you're tired, you're, you're out, you can't, you don't have anything else to give. Interestingly enough, the word for spirit is the same word for breath in Hebrew. But it's shortness of spirit means they, they're just, it's gone. Remember when they sighed? I can't believe anymore. He just, they cried out and said, God save us. God comes and says, I'm going to save you. And they won't believe it because of their despondency, because of their shortness of spirit and cruel bondage. What do you see from this? You see that, that what's happened to them has robbed them of their hope. What's happened to them has robbed them of that ability to believe without questioning, that childlike faith. Now, because they've gone through so much, God has come to deliver them, and they can't hear it. Is that God's fault? No. He's there. He's ready. They can't hear what He has to say, because they let what happened to them get so deep inside of them that that spark is gone, that life is gone, they can't believe anymore. I'm telling you, you've got, and this stuck with them, Guys, I mean, Moses got them out, but barely. As many times as, as Pharaoh said, ah, oh, I changed my mind, I'm not going to let them go. The Israelites were like that. And he finally got them out. He, he got them, he herded them like herding cats. He got them out of, out of Egypt. He gets them out of Egypt, but for the rest of their life, this despondency defines who they are. Because they get to the promised land in record time. Just enough time in the wilderness. The time in the wilderness was meant to prepare them for the promised land. It was a time, the Bible says a time of testing, a time of proving. It was a time where they were going to relearn who God was. You see, he just introduced himself to them. He said, hey, I'm Yahweh. Nice to meet you. Let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. He never left them. But they, at some point, sighed and stopped talking to him. And the minute they did cry out, there he was. The wilderness was meant to be a time where they were relearning who God was and discovering he can do anything. Water from the rock. Poison water became whole again. They could defeat any army. Nothing was impossible. But they grumble every step of the way. And you see them say things like this, things that you and I would not even think of saying, I, I hope. They say things like, were there not enough graves in Egypt? God brought us here just to kill us? Like God had a sixth sense of humor and he just wanted to bring them out and kill them in the wilderness. Why has God brought us out just to, to let us die? Moses said, that's not, that's not what happened. He brought you out. We used to sing this song. Remember the song? We, he did not bring us out this far to take us back again. He brought us out to take us into the promised land. 
That's what Moses said to them. And they, they had to, at some point, believe it. But they kept struggling with that. until, And they get to the edge of the promised land. And he says, here it is, the promised land. He, he told you it'd be flowing with milk and honey. The spies come back and say, it is flowing with milk and honey. But as we studied a few months ago, when those ten spies came back and, and were discouraged by a bunch of giants and fortresses, you see, they grew up with somebody stronger than them telling them what they couldn't do. They grew up with somebody stronger than them telling them they couldn't be what they thought they should be. They grew up in a generation, Moses' generation, he had people that would have been his own age but were put to death as babies just because their nation was getting too big. You see, Pharaoh said they're getting too strong. When they started to get too strong, he not only enslaved them, but he killed their kids. So you see what happens every time they start to think that they're strong, every time they, think they start to think they can do something, somebody stronger came along and beat them down. And when they get to the promised land, they're starting to believe that God can do something, and they get into the promised land, they see somebody stronger. And the Bible says they looked at the giants and said, here's what they said, we saw them and they were in ours, we were in their sight like grasshoppers. It's, it doesn't, actually it says, we were like grasshoppers to them. So we were in our sight. So they didn't ask anybody, are we grasshoppers? They believed it. They said, we're thinking, we are grasshoppers to them. That was their image of themselves. You see, they forgot who God was and started to think about who they were. And all their life, they'd been slaves, been beat down, been pushed down. And they, at some point, just stopped believing that God was with them. And started just saying, we're grasshoppers. Now, I wish this was confined to Israelites thousands of years ago. But it happens every day when somebody grows up. Now, maybe this was somebody who had a good life, but often it can happen to somebody. It can happen to everybody. But maybe you had a rough life before you met Jesus. Maybe you had a rough childhood with parents that didn't do a very good job. Or maybe you had parents that did do a good job, but somebody in your life kept beating you down. Every time you started to raise your head above the water, somebody smacked it down again. Maybe every time you, you started to believe, maybe I can do something, somebody told you you couldn't. And when you got born again, you learned that that wasn't true. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I'm more than a conqueror. I'm rising up. But what you've got to guard against is that old thought pattern coming back and creeping up on you. When you start to think somebody bigger than me can beat me down, tell me I can't be who, I, who God called me to be. I can't do what he called me to do because I can. Joshua and Caleb were able to look past the bondage. We're able, I mean, Joshua and Caleb were in there. They were in that despondent group. They were part of that nation. We sometimes talk about them like they materialized in the wilderness. They were there. They got whipped too. Guys like Caleb probably got whipped a lot. This is a guy as an old man. He's like, as he's, he's an old man, everybody's getting lands divided. And he's like, but there's still giants up there, up in the mountains. People are like, yeah. He goes, I want that land. That's the kind of crotchety old guy he was. He wants the land with giants on it. Everybody else is like, keep him away. He says, I want that land. I'll take it. So I imagine he, got, he, probably, got his, he probably got his share of whippings. Because he probably talked back a little bit more than he should talk back. <laughs> he refused to submit to slavery. It's just my thought. That, the Bible doesn't say that. So that's a Jonathan Brackett. You can count that as Jonathan Brackett. In your notes, say 
not scriptural Jonathan Brackett, all right? So we know. But Joshua and Caleb were able to see who God was and let God, who God was, define who they were. Whereas the rest of them, they were still defined by slavery. Even though they were now the promised people, even though they should have seen themselves as chosen people, they went back to thinking they were slaves. And guys, you're born again. You're righteous. You're a saint by the blood of Jesus. But you can start thinking like you used to think if you want to. I recommend it uh, highly. I recommend against it. I'm telling you, it's a bad idea, but people do it all the time. They go back and begin to think of who they were before they met Jesus. They begin to isolate themselves and say, that's who God is, but this is who I am. But you should never separate the two again. Once you got born again, the two should never be separated again. You know, when we do weddings, we quote the scripture that Jesus said, what God has joined together, don't let anybody put us under, don't let anybody split up again. When God joined two, they became one. When you got born again, you became one with Christ. Never split the two up again. Never think of yourself by yourself again. What happened here is that the despondency did not just put them in a bad mood, but it stopped them from hearing about the plan for deliverance. Don't you see the cycle you could get into if you let yourself? That you could let experiences beat you down to a point where not only, where you simultaneously are crying out for help, but at the same time can't hear the help. You know what I'm saying? You're like, God, rescue me. And then God says, I've got a plan, but you can't hear it because you're so beaten down. Would you hate to be like that? Let's not be like that. And here's the plan. Encourage the faint-hearted. You're going to meet people like this. You're going to meet people that used to believe. Maybe they taught you about this. Maybe they taught you about the word. Maybe they taught you these scriptures and you were full of faith and you went out and you said together, let's go to the mall and just pray for people. You ever had those days and those friends? I had those friends. But if they at some point just get beaten down by attack after attack and they stop having that spark, you come beside them and encourage the faint-hearted and say, nope. Because when you get into this despondent attitude, when you get that despondent spirit on you, you can't hear what God's saying. You can't hear His redemption. You can't hear His way out. Do you understand? The Bible says for every trial, for every temptation, He has provided a way of escape. But if you're so Eeyore-ish and grumpy, that's a new word, eeyore Write it down. It's going to show up in Webster's like three years. Cops. Spread it. Facebook it, Twitter. Go ahead. Eeyore-ish. Hashtag Eeyore-ish. Uh, so anyways, if you get so down and depressed and despondent, that at a certain point, God's saying, here's your way out. But if you let yourself get down there, you won't hear it. It says, so Moses spoke to them, but they did not listen to Moses. Now, I've met churches like this. That's, we're founded on this stuff. We're founded on the Word of God. Founded with a fiery group of people that said, if God said it, it's true. Now, something happened they couldn't explain. Or, or, or here's what happens to so many of us. 
God says this bit begins to paint a picture for us. We get excited. We finish the picture. And then when it doesn't happen like we finished it, we think God failed us. God, why did you do that? I mean, the picture was beautiful. And he goes, I didn't paint that picture. I was going to do it different. There's another scripture that says the Israelites were discouraged, became discouraged and depressed because of the way. Because they had a way they thought should get to the promised land. God took them a different way, and they were depressed about it. If they had just left it up to God and say, you take us where you want to take us, they wouldn't have been depressed about it. But they, they started to think, oh, wait, I know how he's going to do it. You ever heard Brother Tracy Harris prophesy? Yeah, you have, right? The Lord does something interesting through him. I want you to know this is not Brother Tracy, because no human being could do this this fast. But the Lord does something unique through Brother Tracy, and he does something unique through all of us. What he does through Brother Tracy is when, when that man prophesies, it rhymes. You ever notice that? You know, I've learned just because it rhymes doesn't mean you should try to figure out what the next thing is. <laughs> I was standing next to somebody back there like four years ago, five years ago. It was quite a while ago. And uh, I was standing back there. And, and every time he prophesied, this person's like trying to finish the last sentence. I'm like, just shut up, man. You don't know. <laughs> this is not a game. <laughs> this is not, it's not like a ch- children's rhyming game. This is God speaking to somebody. <laughs> we do that. We're like, I, it rhymes. I can guess what comes next. I get excited. No, don't finish the picture. Let God finish the picture. But you take what he said. And if that's all you got, you go on that. You start moving on that. And trust God that he'll finish it. He'll add more to it, add more to it, add more to it. And you go, God, it's a beautiful picture you're painting. I don't see it all, but it's beautiful. A lot of young people, they they get excited for God. They know they're called into ministry. They get anxious. Instead of waiting around where God told them, they graduate and they go, ah, now I have to do something. So many of them go off to some university, college, Bible school, whatever, without hearing from God, just because they felt pressure to do something. Then when, they, when life doesn't turn out like they thought it should turn out, because they made that decision, not God, they get discouraged and think God let them down because I, I came all this way, I spent all this money, and you're sending me back to my hometown. And he goes, I didn't tell you to leave. Now, so, a lot of times he does tell them to leave. I'm not telling that you that God tells everybody to stay. Because <laughs> I want everybody in this church. <laughs> I want, I want everybody where God called you. If God called you to China, I want you to go to China. I will kick you out. <laughs> last person, last thing I want is somebody who's not supposed to be here, here. I want you in the will of God. But you see, so many of them take off because there's pressure. And many times, you don't have an answer to why something happened the way it happened. And somebody asks you a question. Why did that happen? You don't answer unless you know. And I really know that because I'm a pastor. And so I get asked the question all the time. Why did this happen to this person? Why did it happen this way? And I'm going to tell you, I don't always know. And sometimes what I know, I don't think I'm supposed to say. There's things you know in the spirit, and you're just not supposed to talk about yet. And sometimes you just have to get okay with that. Okay, I don't know all the answers. But what I do know is the word is true. It's true. It's true. It's always true. Just settle that and go, God, you're right. God, you're right. 
and everything else that disagrees with you is wrong. I don't care how clear it seems, it's wrong if it disagrees with you. Start that way, you'll be fine. You'll do good. Thank God. Now, in all these things, I want to remind you, in this terrible group of Israelites, they had a Joshua and they had a Caleb and they had a Moses. They had somebody who encouraged them, and it may not have been enough for them to get into the promised land, but it was enough to get their kids there. And that's something big. That's something big. I believe for better things concerning you. I don't, want, I don't want you to wait for your kids to go into what you should have gone into. I want you to go. But I want you to go back to the basic foundational truths that you always believed because the Scripture said they were true. And I want you to examine them and say, do I believe them like I used to believe them? Have I let experience change what I believe? Because experience should not change what you believe. If you'll believe, you know, here's, the, here's what Jesus said. In John 11, he said, belief comes before experience. He said, didn't I tell you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? He didn't say, didn't I tell you if you see the glory of God, you'd believe. He said, didn't I tell you if you believe, you would see it. So we're waiting around to see something before we believe. And God's saying, if you'd believe it, you would see it. He said that to Martha. And we're not just talking about some hypothetical Oh, oh, I get it now. We're talking about a guy who was dead for four days coming alive. I believe we can see that stuff. I believe we can see that stuff. We got to get over. You got to get over your experience and begin to believe again. And if you got people around you that don't believe, you help them believe. You encourage them. You lift them up. You bless them. You pray for them. Don't, don't. Don't ever sigh under the pressure of life. Because Ephesians 6 says that with the armor of God, you will be able to stand. You will be able. You will be able. You will be able. You will be able to stand in the evil day. I've said this before, but the evil day, I imagine, is pretty bad. I imagine that's the day when everything that could be thrown at you is thrown at you. And the Bible says you'll be able to stand in the day, having done everything to stand. Stand, therefore. Sometimes you're waiting for, you're like, God, give me the next move. And sometimes he's just saying, stand, stand, don't fall down. But if you do, don't rejoice over me, for if I fall, I shall arise. Amen. Praise God. We're going to believe like we were kids again. You know why kids believe so freshly? Because no one told them not to. Because you know what? They haven't let everything. I mean, because you just don't, you don't see from God's perspective. So if you make judgments based on what you see, but not on based on what God says, you're making a flawed judgment. Just like, just like if I asked you, hey, what's, what's going on? With what's going on? If I were to take a microscope, what would I see on this Kleenex box? I, I guarantee most of you would not be able to describe in detail what I'd see. You could take your guesses. You could make observations. But only the guy with the microscope really could tell me. And I want to tell you, don't try to make judgments based on your eyes. Make judgments based on his eyes. Amen. See what he sees. See it from his perspective. Because he's been around. And we have. I mean, this is not some hypothetical theory. Maybe someday we'll see uh, maybe someday we'll see God take somebody out of the mud and put them, put them on a rock. 
we've seen it. Maybe someday, maybe somebody, we'd see, we'd see an addict that was so hopelessly addicted that no rehab center could help them, but now they're free. Now we've seen that. Maybe, maybe someday we can see somebody who's suicidal you have, be full of joy and be the happiest person in the church. No, we've seen that. Maybe someday we can see blind eyes open. We've seen it, and we will see it again. This is not a theory. This is life. You've got to believe like a child. And I believe it. I believe it. You've got to go past what happened. What, what didn't seem to work for somebody, why, didn't, why, they, why they're in heaven and why this, get over it, move on, and believe. And don't, don't let yourself be afraid of that. I had to say when my father went to heaven, I had to get down with my Bible and figure out what I'd act like the next time I saw somebody with cancer, how I'd be able to pray for them. And I did not leave until I was convinced I could believe wholeheartedly that they'd be here. Because otherwise, I'm not doing them any good. I might as well just stay away from them. If I can't hope again, if I can't believe again, there's no hope for me. I, I just need to stop praying for people. I would not put my Bible down. I wouldn't get out of that prayer until I could believe. Jesus, his name above every name is above every name. It's above cancer. It's above addiction. It's above suicide. It's above demon possession. It's above every other name. It's above MS. It's above lupus. It's above all those things. And if that's true, it's always true. And I'm going to believe that above everything else. And if I can't believe that, I'm going to lock myself in a room or get two friends that will talk in my ear for hours at a time until I can believe it again. Because the world's counting on you. The world's counting on not dead religion, but real faith. I wouldn't, I wouldn't preach this if I didn't believe it. I wouldn't tell it to you. I'm not trying to sell you snake oil. I'm telling you the word of God works. I'm tired of just seeing it in other countries. Philippines, that first trip dad took to the Philippines. I mean, there was radical miracles. That, that, there's a lady right there that had a goiter on her neck that big. Fell off in front of everybody. There was an old lady that was blind. People began screaming around, disrupting the message. My goodness. <laughs> Quiet, the man can't preach. No, they were starting to scream because now this old lady that they all knew because they were in her village can see. I got punched by a guy whose arm didn't work until we prayed for him. And he was so excited, he punched me in the side. <laughs> hurt. You know why? I, I said, God, why do so many miracles happen over there? Because nobody told them they shouldn't. Because these were people that just believed. These are people that were fresh and just said, well, you guys say God says it, then I believe it. We got to get over our North American skepticism and start to believe again. Start to believe again. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. If you can't accept that, you're not going to have much success. You believe that God's wisdom will seem foolish until they start to see the result of your faith. It'll back it up. I believe signs and wonders follow the preaching of the word, and I believe it will follow the preaching of the word as you minister to people, as you share the gospel.